question from Emmanuel Shikuku. Could the panelists please comment on the agency of the devolution structures for social equality? And, and I think both of you, you know, um, whether, whether you speak in general or you speak from where you are, um, coming from, uh, at least you're, you're currently placed in Nairobi County and Mombasa County. That is uh, county number one and county number 47. So between you, you cover the country. But this whole question of is devolution a way of, 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 of taking us towards social equality? The, the reason why we devolved was to trust people. The old system did not trust people. It said that smart people are located in Nairobi and they'll make decisions for everybody else <laughs> everywhere in Kenya. In turn, we were saying, trust all the people in Kenya. They will make decisions that are best for them. This is what is the subsidiarity principle in our construction of what devolution is. Meaning, we trust neighborhoods, we trust communities, and we trust the counties. And in those counties, people will have an opportunity to govern themselves. They will have an opportunity to elect their own local officials, and they will have an opportunity to put to work a budget for themselves. In other words, setting for themselves their own priorities. What we did not do with devolution is to work with Kenyans so enough and say, forget about the demonization of politics. We cannot demonize politics to an extent that good people don't come to run for, for office. We must encourage young people who are well-meaning, well-educated, and they want to make a difference in their lives to run for office as MCA. And, and as an MCA, you are able to control the path of your country. Let's ask people to run for governor, young people. And we need to organize now to get people to get IDs. You think why they don't give young people IDs? It's because it is power in their hands. So fight for young people to get IDs, fight for young people to register as voters because they have been eliminated uh, and they have been told the politics is dirty and only take money and vote for whoever gives you money. So a political education component and a civic education component is critical to, to explain to people how these structures work and how we can take over those structures. And it will not matter what they do at national level much. If we can change our own circumstance in our neighborhood, in our small spaces, we can uh, direct money to education, to health, to water, to the most important elements that make a difference to our people. That's why, for me, I'm completely convinced that devolution is absolutely important. So that's something that we're going to add, that by 2050, we've got to make sure that this local level control of resources and control of the decisions on the things that matter is down to that level. Wangoi, what would you like to add to that? You know, I think that it's entrenched in law is great. At least thinking about, uh, of course, there's the wonderful example of Makweni. Then there's also a constituency like Madare, where the MP was, there was a list of MPs or ward representatives who don't go to the assembly. Madare, of course, all their representatives feature very high on that list or who don't say anything. So part of the problem is, is that when the, I think, and also, Maybe this is just my own thoughts, but when the calculus is, uh, do I have unga or do I have water? And this person momentarily will give me unga and I'll vote for them. Or when there's there's calcul the calculus is not what has this person done for my community? What are they going to do? To put it simply, if there's not, if for example you don't have very many options that are running because th that is already controlled from levels that you don't have, so you're not invested in the process really because you already the 
that your options are not ones that come from your community and that are not representing you. But at the same time, when if your vote can be swayed by the provision of something you don't have, rather than your own uh, investment in what your community needs. So if you're told, Leo, oh, mom, I'll give you a sufuria, just vote for me. And you'd swayed that way uh, because of that, rather than you may want to think long term, but here's a promise that you can pass up because these are these are services that were not given before. Then if that is the calculus, we need to, for devolution to really work, we need to remove that calculus. We need to invest people with all their basic services first so we can see the real fruits of the possibilities of devolution, I think in a more substantive way. I also agree that we need political education. Unfortunately, the and Madare has had two people from Madare who've run, but they've they've never they've never gone far enough. And that's a, a big shame. So in terms of but you you're agreeing that if I'm hearing you right, that in terms of if we are because we're thinking about yes, we stand in the present, but if we are thinking into the future, that the way yeah. to go in terms of social getting towards social equality would be to make sure that people have um, control of their resources at the local level and figure out how to make it work. Um, you had you had spoken about, and I think you're the one who came up with the question on, on youth and talked about how important it is for us when we think of equality to think about generations. Joy um, Jama is asking, what roles are the junior youth, and now we're talking about people below the age of 20, obliged to engage in in order to assist in alleviating social inequality. What can we do to actively participate in fighting social inequality? So Angoy, do you want to um, take us a little yeah. bit more of what your thinking was in that direction? Not only are youth who are, I think 70% of the Kenyan population under 35. So they are the, without a doubt, the majority uh, demographically. But what youth are also fighting against is this narrative that always will say, okay, you're only a dividend or you're a time bomb. You can only be, if you fit into a neoliberal entrepreneurship role, then you're a benefit to society. But if you don't, you're just a time bomb. The problem is we have bought, many youth have bought into that, in that they're not seeing the agency they have as a generation to go against all of these narratives that are, are thrown at them. And the options that they're given are very limited. You know, they're told you, okay, you need to be an entrepreneur, but finding a license for your business is very hard. No one is, they tell you, you need to go plant food in a, a be an agricultural entrepreneur but no one is distributing land you know and it's controlled like elsewhere by men and it's really I think this is the problem we face however young people are so like I, their power is unlimited and you can see that in the amazing things they do in their communities whether in Madare there's the creation of a biogas uh, looking at the gaps that exist in the community but also coming together there's actually a biogas small factory in Madare you know or in reinventing narratives about themselves in their histories and pushing against the narratives the historical and present narratives that are told about them but ultimately from my experience and I'm I'm trying to cling on to be a youth but I can't be a youth anymore I think one of the most the things that I've learned the most over maybe the last 10 years of trying to be involved in community groups is a need to co-create the future you see within a, a, a formation of young people just co-creating but also or working towards it and I think this co-creation pole pole will will bring some change but coming together is is, is very important and also so questioning derogatory terms like youth bulge or time bomb that are circulated not only by your government, but by international institutions. 
So not getting intimidated as youth, but starting to even within your youth groups, even if you're under 20, figuring out like people like you, and then starting to work on things and finding allies, both across the generation, but across um, wider. Um, Zain, Joki Mwarumba is asking, what, if at all, do you see the role of Kenyans living in the diaspora? Uh, a very important role. If you look at um, our history, transformation in Kenya has always been an intersection between all spaces being occupied for struggle. And um, the diaspora has played a very important part in the struggle. Um, during colonial time, where uh, conditions did not allow for activism of the kind that could be done outside, it was a bit um, dicey. But how to delegitimize oppressive systems has to be done at international level. For example, Kenya today is campaigning to be part of the Security Council in the United Nations. At the same time, it is promising great things for observation of human rights, um, regional peace, uh, constitutionalism, and so on. And the same government is flattening and attacking ordinary dwellings of people who struggling with the pandemic and struggling with making a living and flattening them out completely with bulldozers. And at the same time, they want to be a world leader. So again, the people in diaspora would be the ones who lead this kind of activism. Um, I've seen people talking about um, what role can they be playing. They, they can play the role of political education. They can play the role of fundraising. They can uh, play the role of um, exposing people to different models. They can play the role of uh, mobilizing international opinion. They can play the role of, of coordination, of uh, participation. And I've seen uh, people talking about um, international systems. If each, each and every one of us must determine what is our role, but we must invest in what I was saying, which is a critical mass. Critical mass comes from collective action. And collective action comes from negotiation, comes of solidarity, comes of sharing values, and come, come from mobilizing and organizing. So those, those are things that you cannot take, talk about one and not the other. So it is a whole system of comprehensive social action at the group level and comprehensive social action at community level, but also at national and international level. Uh, let me give you an example. When people talk about systems and systems, um, uh, we need to change systems. Take India, for example. India today is led by people who are very anti-people, who are very um, oppressive. But if you look at a state like Kerala, they have built a different system there. For a long time, Kerala has built a different system. And Kerala is doing much better in handling the pandemic than generally the largest state called India. So again, these nuances of people being able to create models and systems that work is important. Okay, but what, how, how, how do we fit in the diaspora very specifically? People who they're invested in, 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 in pouring into this country, invested in working on this issue, but they're not sitting here. And some of them may not even be in a place where they're close to other Kenyans physically. Does the diaspora have a role and a responsibility? You know, you know, um, my sister, Dr. Mshai, I'm not one of those who come from the school of thought and say you need a member of parliament slot for diaspora. I'm talking about working with the general people. Why are they not investing in uh, social justice centers? Why, why should we only depend on fundraising from donors? Why are we not giving support to working models of systems that are working and say, I'll put my money there. I will, I will promote this. I'll wage 
I'll become a warrior in the cyberspace to expose evil and and uh, name and shame those who are uh, oppressing people in Kenya. I will I would uh, put money in Imlu because they are um, doing great work in terms of police violence and also helping people in terms of healing and getting treatment. So there is a lot of space for them to do. It's just a matter of saying how do we sit down and agree. So maybe at some point we should have this renewal of action from where you are, whatever place you are in the world, you can contribute to the struggle. Okay, and I have only time for a couple of, and I'm going to ask you, you guys to be very, very short because I have, as usual, many questions coming in at the last minute. So really like one sentence, two sentence, quick answers. Um, one question is coming from Victor, and he's asking, in what ways are technological advancements exasperating or alleviating social injustices in Kenya today? Either of you. The, I think the inverse, I don't know if that's a word, the inverse of that question that we receive all the time is, how uh, is technology helping struggle? The answer we give is that people need to be doing the work first before technology helps them. So I think equally for if if technology is exacerbating or, or impacting efforts for equality, it's because people are doing the work. And so we must, it's just a compliment. So we need to invest in, in people who are doing the work. So and I, I, I agree. I, I agree with Wangoi, but I would like to add two sinister aspects of the technology in Kenya. This perception that um, children can learn through technology. Uh, that is, you're talking about maybe 1%. Um, uh, inequality, a majority of Kenyans cannot afford to use that technology um, uh, in wherever they are, in rural areas and in other places. But secondly, there has been an insidious use of technology in the so-called uh, contact and tracing and quarantining people. And they are doing this outside the legal framework. And they are invading personal in, uh, private space. And this is being done in an unholy coalition between um, service providers and uh, government agencies, including uh, security ag agencies, without any limitations of law. And how do you roll that back? Uh, that is uh, something that could be worth um, a longer discussion on. Thank you. I'm going to give the final question to somebody who was a panelist last week, and I'm really, really pleased to see that uh, Dr. Eric Masese is, is following us and joining us. And he asks, can inequality be separated from individual values, morals, and ethics? And I think we've almost come um, full circle to where we started. So can we separate this question of inequality in society from individual ethics, morals, and values? Uh, the answer is no. And uh, I also li like to say it is not individual. <laughs> it is our collective values. It is our collective aspirations. It is our collective direction to establish a just society. Uh, the individual um, characteristics are useful, but you must look at the socialization processes and what values they teach these individuals, but also collectively, what values do we embrace ourselves? So again, uh, the question of values, I said, is what informs ideology. So if you operate from the point of view that you want to exploit people, you, you will then develop um, a justification why certain people have to be exploited. But if you believe in equality and equity, then you will develop an ethos that is all-inclusive, all-encompassing, and respecting all people without discrimination. Thank you. Ongoi, would you like to add anything to that? 
I mean, we shouldn't forget that Kenya in the state that it is, in the territory that it is, is was initially in function of an imperialist project, a way to extort resources, a way to subjugate populations. But, and for sure, the, the foundation of this state uh, is going to shape the interactions we have even now. And these are ethics and people internalize these imperialist processes or these oppressive processes. At the same time, I agree completely that along the history, throughout the history of our country, people have been undermining these ethos that are imposed in this geography that we call Kenya. And so we shouldn't generalize, we can't, we can't remove people's individual responsibilities to partake in collectivity, but, and we must emphasize it, but we also know that the foundation of this state throughout the history of Kenya has sought to divide and rule and to make sure people internalize imperialist processes and individualized processes and undermine people's culture and Ubuntu-ness. So we can't, I think the question is, can we, how do we prioritize people's individual responsibility to ethics? No, but we, not at all, but we must come as a collectivity and we must also not forget that our state functions to make sure that we are not united in its foundation. So we must always try and uphold the, the structures and the, and the efforts that unite us to end all the exclusions that are invested in the foundation of our country. Wow. I'm going to come back to each of you and ask you just for a final word. But before I do that, let me just thank everybody who has asked a question or, 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 or made a comment. There are some really great comments. I want to read out a couple of them as we do that. And we really, really do value that you have come on, you've stayed on, you've kept us engaged. I'm sorry I haven't been able to get to every single question and comment, but we really are going to go through all of them. I know after this, we'll talk about these with the panelists and see how some of your comments can be even incorporated into our thinking. We the next cafes. Um, Gilbert Omara, Omara encourages us to invest in social justice centers, that they definitely do work. Shiko Ndua says that um, I tend to think political leadership has become redundant. In my opinion, the same pattern of events from elections to campaigns. And she goes on to explain why that just, we, we need to just put the politics on the side. Zarina Patel says that as long as we refuse to recognize that we are living in a class society, in a capitalist system, which is dominated by imperialism, the future we imagine can only be a wish list. And actually, we will come back and talk about this at length in the final uh, Corona Cafe. Uh, let me get a couple others that uh, uh, Salvi says that basically a culture of political participation at all ages and levels is needed. Zahid Rajan, who's actually commented a lot, thank Thank you, Zahid, says we need bold, brave leaders with integrity and political clarity to work among the masses and leave self-interest aside. There are so many comments, and I wish I could read out all of them, and I, I really can't because I'm also, I'm getting signals. It's time, and we really must bring this to an end. But I do not want to end without asking Abu Bakr Zain and Wangoi Kimari, what are the last words that you would leave us with? If, we, if there is something you want us to take away, what is it that you would want us to take away with us? With, with us? If you look at the comments people have made, there are a number of things that are critical and are important. One, we must deal with the question of system or structure. Oppressive structures will not come down by themselves. We must bring them down ourselves, number one. Number two, it's about the people. It's the people themselves who we must invest in. Um, not individuals, but the people as a collective. But in the, in the collective, individual uh, action is also important. So in a sense of saying, how do we build solidarity, which is then used as, as a resource 
to fight the structures, but also to, to treat each other equally, equitably, fairly. And we start establishing models that are already working, small models. Thirdly, the question of personal responsibility is, is critical for me as well, that we, we cannot, for example, be fighting injustice at national level, but the spaces that we control, the little spaces that we control, there is injustice there. We, ca we cannot talk about decent, fair work. And then people who work for us, our drivers and so on, we, we don't pay them decent work. So we must leave, we must leave the transformation that we seek to establish. And we must be willing to be judged by not only what we speak, but our actions. Wow, thank you. We will be judged not only by what we speak, but by our actions. Wangoi, what is your final word to us? As, as a small compliment to what Abubakar said, I think we must sustain an imagination that doesn't see exclusion as normal and that can think of a way to organize our state, our social economic lives beyond an op the oppressive system that we have. So let's just, let's just work to it hard. We're always battling this punitive state, but to sustain this imagination that other worlds are possible and exclusion, is, social inequality shouldn't be normalized. That's all. Social inequality shouldn't be normalized, and each one of us can do something about it. I'm seeing a comment from a participant. Wangoi Wagoro reminds us that today is International Day of Family Remittances, and I think that's one of the real basic ways that we look after each other. It is also the day of the African child, and we surely must imagine a future that makes that makes it certain that the children of who are people who are children today and the children of the generations yet to come will inherit a better country, a better continent, a better world. I want to thank everybody for joining us in this second cafe when we have talked about social inequalities. And we do hope that you will keep the conversation going on social media um, communities. So thank you for joining us. Thank you very, very much, Wangoi. Thank you very, very much, Abubakar Zain. Have a wonderful night, all of you.